You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I tried to have a mellow one, but that didn't quite work out. I feel like I've been saying that for the last two months. Work was crazy. The world is crazy. But I finally got to see the sun for the first time this month yesterday, so that's not nothing. This is the coldest June I've ever experienced living in Los Angeles. And after this, I frankly don't know how so many people just can go months without seeing the sun. That just feels so foreign to me, but that might be my 13 years in Southern California getting the better of me. And also, I think, yeah, I've been here for 13 years. My God, almost 13 years. For movie theater movie reviews this week, we've got Dirty Dancing. Yes, the one from the 80s. There is not a new Dirty Dancing out. So for years, Dirty Dancing has been one of what I like to call my shame movies, a.k.a. a film that seemingly everyone has seen, but that you personally never have. Dirty Dancing for a long time has been one of those movies for me. It's like just one of those like... It feels like you've seen it because you've seen so many clips and it's so ingrained into like culture, but you've actually never sat down and just like watched it from beginning to end. But this week I had a craving to go to Alamo Draft House, which is only about 20 minutes away from me without traffic. So naturally it's perpetually an hour away, but I went after work, so it was only like 40 minutes away, which is somehow an improvement. But that's L.A. traffic logic for you. I turned to the theater and just kind of like picked a movie blindly because I had no idea when I'd actually get there because of traffic. When I got there, turned out that there was something called a movie party happening and the movie party was for Dirty Dancing. So I decided to give that a try because I was feeling some whimsy. Turned out, I love Dirty Dancing. Though when I looked up the ages of the actors at the time of shooting the film afterward, I did get the ick real bad. But it was really fun. It was actually very well written and directed, which I was not expecting. I don't know what I was expecting from this movie, but it it, it was fun. I liked it. I will definitely watch it again. It'd be a great background movie. I dug it. Also... Turns out, big fan of the AMC movie party. They, when you go to your seat, there's like props for you to use, like during the film. For Dirty Dancing, there was like an inflatable watermelon. I got a keychain. If you know me personally, you know I'm a sucker for a keychain. And glow stick to wave in the air during certain songs. It was cute. It was very fun. Now I'm uh, also a big fan of movie parties at Alamo Drafthouse, so if there's one by you, definitely take a look at their schedule. There is a little bit of, I think I got lucky because there is a planning element because a lot of those kinds of screenings do tend to sell out there, especially if you're in a big movie fan area like I am in Los Angeles. And you can also, if you're one of the 10 people who was foolish enough to be hurt again by MoviePass and signed up for it, you can use your MoviePass. So yeah, highly recommend. 
Uh, strike stuff. Still no announcements on anything really going forward. The DGA vote is still out. Again, watch that just get confirmed the second I finish recording and publish this episode. The SAG deliberations are currently ongoing, but there is a media blackout in place. So we are not going to know anything publicly until there's either a deal or a breakdown in talks. And as of recording this, there is still no word on when the WGA, who is still very much on strike, and AMPTP will return to the table. One of my friends sent me a image of a uh, exotic dancer. Apparently there was an exotic dancer day on one of the picket lines, and I thought that was... Uh... <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good one. There was also a musical theater day this week at my uh, works picket line, which mercifully I was not there because Mondays I worked from home because I saw videos of it and it did look fun from the outside. But I imagine hearing that muted over the sounds of honking hearts on the street would have about done in my uh, audio sensitivity issues. So with that, let's get on to this week's topic. This week, a duo who had their own careers in their own rights, but who for a multitude of years were a double act of epic proportions. This week, the lives and double act career of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. These guys will definitely need to be covered singularly down the line, but for today, we'll do a quick look at both of these men. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Here we go again, Junior. We're wrong. On the road to Morocco This taxi is tough on the spine Beats the bus, huh, Junior? Beats me Where we're we're going, going. why we're going How can we be sure? I'll lay you eight to five That we meet Dorothy Lamour (laughs) Yoo-hoo-hoo Off on the road to Morocco Hang on till the Harry Lillis Crosby Jr. was born on May 3rd, 1903 in Washington in a house his father built for the family. Crosby had been born into a musical family. His parents, Harry Lowe Crosby Sr. and Catherine Helen Kate Harrigan, were both performers. R. Crosby was the fourth of seven children, and his family often moved from place to place due to their father's touring schedule. As a young boy, Crosby developed a love for music and theater and began singing and playing the drums. He took a summer job as a prop boy at a local auditorium when he was 14, where he witnessed some of the top vaudeville acts of the day, including Al Jolson, who, of course, would go on to become the first person to speak with sync sound in a commercially released film. But back in 1917, he was still a vaudeville actor touring the circuit, spellbinding audiences everywhere, and young Crosby would be no exception. Crosby would eventually attend virtually every stage show that went through town. Crosby would briefly attend Gonzaga University, but dropped out in 1924 to pursue a career in music full-time. He'd be given an honorary degree from the college 13 years later, when, you know, all this worked out. In need of a gig, Crosby then joined a local band called The Musical Ladders as their drummer and vocalist. During this time, he adopted Bing after a comic strip character as his stage name, though the name Bing had been a nickname of his since childhood. In 1925, the musical ladders felt they'd outgrown the Gonzaga music scene and moved to L.A. in November of that year. Shortly thereafter, the band's talent caught the attention of band leader Paul Whiteman, who invited the remaining two members of the group to join his orchestra as vocalists. Crosby's star would rise from there. 
as many of you are all too aware, Crosby was becoming a name as sound became standard in film. Crosby had one of, if not the best voice in American pop culture, the whatever, what have you. So it was no surprise when Hollywood came calling for him. Crosby made his film debut in 1930 in the picture King of Jazz as a member of the Rhythm Boys, a male singing trio which had formed from within Whiteman's orchestra. Soon, the Rhythm Boys were the toast of any town they rolled into and would either leave or be fired from Whitman's roster depending on who you believe. By this time, you see, the boys, particularly Crosby, were taking full advantage of their newfound fame and imbibing quite a bit in the booze and the ladies. Crosby even got arrested for nearly driving a car into the lobby of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Yes, he'd been drinking. And for those of you who aren't American or who suck at history, this was during Prohibition, so they weren't supposed to be drinking at all. But you see how well that whole thing went. That same year, Crosby would also marry his first wife, Dixie Lee, who was a famous actress contracted at Fox. She was actually the more famous of the two at this time, but she gave up her career to be a housewife. The two would have a tumultuous marriage, with Dixie even announcing that she was going to leave him within the first couple of years of their marriage. His partying and her drinking were not helping matters, you see. But the two would, sure, enjoy a 22-year marriage together, but it ended when Dixie died of ovarian cancer just before her 43rd birthday. The couple had four boys. 1931 saw the Rhythm Boys disbanding and Crosby recording his first solo hit, I Surrender, Dear, which launched his career as a solo artist. Throughout the 1930s, Crosby would gain immense popularity thanks to his soothing voice, revolutionary interpretation of the music, and unique crooning style. Ten of the top 50 songs of 1931 either included Crosby singing with others or just him by himself. Between radio shows and gigs, Crosby played the lead in a series of musical comedy shorts for Max Sennett, as Crosby could not only sing, but could act and had bitch-perfect comedic timing. Despite not embodying the classic physical features of a Hollywood leading man, Paramount signed him to a contract, which Crosby would be a part of for decades, and Crosby would star in his first full-length film, which was 1932's The Big Broadcast. Crosby would soon be making three films a year as an everyman type for the studio, while also having a record deal with Decca Records, and just to completely top it all off, a successful radio show. Crosby would dominate the airwaves for the next 31 years, making 600 singles along the way. So 1,200 songs. It was also in 1932 that Crosby would first meet his part-time collaborator of 20 years. Leslie Towns Hope was born on May 29, 1903, in London, England. In 1908, the family emigrated from England to the United States, ultimately settling in Cleveland, Ohio, where Hope's father worked as a stonemason. Despite coming to America in search of a better life, the family was always quite poor. Despite being a bit of a troubled child, Hope showed a penchant for entertaining and making people laugh and began performing as a comedian and impressionist in small local shows and amateur competitions. Hope dropped out of Reform High School to pursue a career in entertainment, and by the age of 15, he was performing as a vaudevillian full-time. 
Hope's stage career took him from one vaudeville stage to the next all over the country. And during this time, he was honing his comedic skills and developing his signature rapid style delivery and self-deprecating humor. He could dance, he could act, and he could sing for good measure. Despite his array of talents, it was a long, difficult struggle to fame for Hope. In 1928, the 25-year-old was broke, starving, and almost had to return home and admit defeat. Show business just wasn't going to be his game. Luckily, before it came to that, a friend got him an MC job, which is basically hosting, which would be a career for Hope for the rest of his life, in part, of course. In the early 1930s, Hope transitioned to radio, making his debut on The Intimate Review, where he caught the attention of producers. His quick wit and charming persona made him a hit with audiences, and he soon became a highly sought-after radio performer. In 1932, Crosby and Hope performed together for the first time at the Capitol Theater in New York, though they'd met shortly before that at the Friars Club, where the two played pool and Hope, according to Crosby, just wiped the floor with Crosby. By this time, of course, Crosby had become a household name as a singer, but Hope was still an up-and-coming vaudevillian turned master of ceremonies. The story goes that once the two had gotten tired of doing their acts, the two ended up doing a performance that was completely improvised, including some old vaudeville routines, which made the crowd go wild. The two realized that they had great chemistry in that moment. Unfortunately, Crosby was already contracted with Paramount in Los Angeles, and Hope chose to remain in New York until the end of the decade. While still in New York... Hope had made several comedic shorts for Warner Brothers under their Vitaphone label, which was taking advantage of the bevy of Broadway talent on the East Coast. Hope's first short for them was 1934's Perry Perry. Unfortunately, despite the shorts being pretty well received and with Hope having a blossoming Broadway career, the films did nothing to start a Hollywood career for him. That was until 1937, when Hollywood finally took notice. Hope's big break came shortly after while performing on his radio program, The Pepsodent Show, in 1938. There, Hope would develop his skills with taking news stories and applying his own style of humor, essentially inventing the late-night talk show monologue in the process. The show would remain a top-ten staple throughout the 1940s. Hope's success on the show led to a contract with Paramount Pictures, and he made his feature film debut in the big broadcast of 1938, which had forced him to finally relocate to Hollywood. There, Paramount would tailor roles for Hope based on his radio persona, which was that of a big talker, but who, when faced with adversity, melted like butter. One of the first examples of Crosby's early work was 1939's The Cat and the Canary, which was a horror comedy. Hope would host the Oscars for the first time in 1940 as they were on the radio back then, so they didn't need an on-screen person. A job he would take on 19 times between then and 1977, which was ironic as Hope would never win an Academy Award, though he was awarded four honorary ones, as well as the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award. Just before that had happened, though, Crosby had invited Hope to perform with him at a benefit held at the Del Mar Racetrack, which was owned by Crosby. There they performed the same act they'd done over half a decade earlier in New York. As the legend goes, some Paramount studio executives at the Benefit took notice of Hope and Crosby's chemistry and made plans to team them up in their own motion picture. The legend also states that the executives didn't know that the two had known each other for years and instead assumed they were making up the act on the spot, which of course they were not. 
What would happen next was a series of seven films that would in part define the comedy films of that era. The first picture Hope and Crosby made together was 1940's Road to Singapore, and it would establish the basic elements of all the future Road to pictures. Six of the seven films soon to come would also star Dorothy L'Amour as the love interest. The project that would ultimately become Road to Singapore had first been offered to two other duos under the title Road to Mandalay. All four of those individuals declined the project. Undeterred, Paramount decided to give it to Crosby and Hope, taking advantage of their chemistry while also capitalizing on the screen popularity of L'Amour, who had already made several well-performing pictures that had a quote-unquote South Seas theme. Filming for Roads to Singapore began in Hollywood on October 2, 1939, and continued through December. From this film originated several running gags that would appear throughout the road films, including the two playing patty cake, which I learned is not called patty cake this week. In the first usage of this gag, Crosby and Hope's characters use the game as a distraction before starting a fist fight that allows them to escape from trouble. This film would also establish the two main characters as usually con men of some sort, which they would be for most of the other films, although in this movie it is a job they do find along the way. In all of the films, Hope would play the more nervous of the two, acting incredibly macho until that ultimately fell apart due to the circumstances surrounding him. Crosby, meanwhile, was the suave schemer, always taking advantage of Hope's meeker nature. In the third of these films, for example, Crosby's character literally sells Hope. In another, he makes Hope tango with a giant octopus underwater, and in yet another, Hope is shot out of a cannon. All of these hijinks would be interspersed with musical acts, of course. Throughout all of these journeys, though, they were also just companions on a crazy trip. There was also a not-so-subtle rivalry between them, as Crosby would often get the girl by the film's end, one time he got two girls, and with few exceptions, Hope would get no girls. Or ladies, they're not girls. The appeal with these films to most audience members was to just watch Hope and Crosby kind of just be themselves against this backdrop of exotic locales. The two were not playing themselves, mind you, but that hardly mattered to anyone. All you see on that screen, honestly, is Bob Hope and Bing Crosby just having an absolute blast. Also in these films, they'd parody other movies of the era. There would also be meta elements like a man in a tuxedo from a quote unquote different film coming into a scene of Hope and Crosby in overalls while they were shoveling coal to light a cigarette on his way to a different stage in film. This meta style would become pretty popular in the 80s. The best example I could think of this is like The End of Blazing Saddles by Mel Brooks. Until the James Bond films came out, the road movies were the most successful franchise in film history and made Bob Hope a star at the level of Bing Crosby while revitalizing Crosby's career, which was starting to slightly stagnate at this point. The two, while declared a team by the studio and the public and appearing on each other's radio shows and other things over the years, were never made an official team in the way our first two subjects this month were. And while they performed incredibly well together and did so often, even attending many benefits together and a lot of public stuff, the two rarely socialized privately. They did like each other. But theirs was a mostly professional relationship as they thought that spending too much time together would make their comedy kind of stale, which is something they sorely wanted to avoid. 
And it's kind of funny because even when the two weren't in a film together or in some kind of project together, at some point or another, they'd make some kind of joke about the other one in their pictures. Shortly after Road to Singapore came out, Crosby had the biggest musical hit of his career with the recording of Irving Berlin's White Christmas, which debuted on Christmas Day 1941. The song would appear in several of his films, including 1942's Holiday Inn and, of course, White Christmas in 1954. The song would chart 16 times in total and to this day is one of the best-selling singles of all time. Crosby was dismissive of his role in the song's success, saying, quote, A jackdaw with a cleft palate could have sung it successfully. 1941 also saw the next Road 2 film, which had everybody playing a different version of basically the same character they played in the first one. This time the film was called Road to Zanzibar. This film spoofed the safari genre, which was pretty popular at this time, and the film resembled its predecessor in several ways. Plot took a backseat to gags, many of which were ad-libbed or punched up by Hope's radio writers, and also, of course, the music. The film, despite being panned by critics, was loved by audiences, and further Road 2 pictures were a given as a result. 1942's Road to Morocco was next, which is probably the most popular of the three. Crosby and Hope played shipwrecked buddies who find themselves in Morocco, caught in a love triangle with Lamour's character, Princess Shalmar. The film is known for its witty dialogue, zany situations, breaking of the fourth wall, which started being pretty common in this film, and of course, the musical numbers. It would be four years until the next Road 2 film, and in that time, Hope would appear in three films, including 1943's They Got Me Covered, which co-starred L'Amour, and 1944's The Princess and the Pirate, which features a cameo from Crosby at the end of the film. And of course, by this point, the U.S. had entered World War II. Both men during World War II would perform for the troops and were constantly on tour. Hope had started entertaining them just before America had entered the war back in the spring of 1941 when he was convinced by show producers to take his radio show out to perform for a group of reserve servicemen. He didn't know it yet, but this would change the course of his life and legacy. The Bob Hope Troop, when America did enter the war of the USO tour, would visit basically every front in the war. Everywhere that there were American troops, Bob Hope brought a slice of what the service men and women had left behind in the States to boost morale. Hope would become intertwined with the life of the American soldier, specifically during World War II, though he did go out for basically every conflict America was involved in until he was like very, very old. And as a result, the public loved him for it. He was, you know, bringing a beacon of light into a very, very dark place. In 1945, Crosby would win an Oscar for his turn as Father O'Malley and Going My Way, the campaign of which delayed the next road film, it is believed, as Paramount didn't want Crosby and Hope's zany antics to detract from Crosby's more upscale turn in Going My Way. But it, 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 it came. Eventually it came. And the next Hope Crosby vehicle was Road to Utopia, which released in 1946, aiming a comedic lens to the Yukon gold rush of the late 19th century. It would be the only period piece of the Road 2 films, as well as the only one produced, not to mention a specific place in the title. Then, Crosby and Hope would partially finance the fifth Road 2 film, Road to Rio, in 1947. 
In between the next two films, both would dabble on television, with Crosby most often appearing on musical variety shows as his producers didn't really want him to talk. They wanted him to sing. Crosby would eventually turn host as well and was the number one film, TV and radio personality in the U.S. for the majority of the 1940s as a result. Frankly, being Crosby, guy was like a full-blown American icon. Hope, meanwhile, would appear on NBC primarily in a series of specials as he didn't want to be a TV guy, didn't want a TV show, so he did the specials instead and was the first television performer to use cue cards, which of course is now very standard in late night TV. In between these specials, he was, you know, also a a comedy icon in his own right. He would also take a semi-serious role in 1949's Sorrowful Jones, in which he played a bookie forced to take care of a little girl. Both were also incredible businessmen and even owned a gas company together. Before long, the two were some of the richest men, not only in Hollywood, but in the entire country. Initially known as Road to Hollywood, the penultimate Road to film and the final to also star Dorothy L'Amour was 1952's Road to Bali. After a string of hits in the series, this was the first one not to perform all that well at the box office, which Hope blamed on Paramount's unwillingness to promote the film, and they only paid about half what was expected in marketing costs. Ten years would pass between road pictures. Crosby would notably star in White Christmas in 1954. Hope would continue working on his radio show, The Bob Hope Show, which ran from 1937 to 1956, as well as his variety shows. Bing Crosby had his own variety shows and his own radio shows. Very, very busy men. Hope also began doing more service work, helping out causes like cerebral palsy, just local communities in need. And of course, he'd entertain the troops for the remainder of his public life. Road to Hong Kong would be the final film in the Road 2 series, and Bing Crosby and Bob Hope would be forced to do it without Dorothy L'Amour. Joan Collins took on the female lead as Paramount had deemed L'Amour, who was 11 years younger than Bing and Crosby, mind you, too old to play a love interest. Hope did manage, however, to secure L'Amour an extensive cameo. The film was the least positively received of the lot, with critics saying that they felt that the 59-year-old comedians couldn't pull off their parts because of their ages and that it was unfair for them to dump their old partner, L'Amour, with whom they had excellent screen chemistry for the more youthful Collins. But what are you going to do? Also, Peter Sellers, who played the... Indian physician in the film, that's the name of the character, came off as more fresh and funny than the aging stars of the film. So not great. Comedy was also changing at this time, and I'm sure the two were also starting to feel a bit relic-y to audiences. Crosby slowed down in the late 50s, early 60s, having had remarried after his first wife, Dixie's death in 1952. He and new wife Catherine would move to the San Francisco Bay Area to slow things down. And after not exactly being the best father in the world, extreme understatement, depending on who you believe, to his first four sons from his first marriage, he was voluntold by his new partner that he'd be a better father the second time around to their three kids. Another road film was planned to begin shooting in 1977, but it would never get made. 
Bing Crosby had partially retired in the early 70s from performing due to health reasons. But on March 20th, 1977, he came out of retirement to tape the Bing 50th anniversary gala, marking his 50 years of performing. Crosby fell off the stage into the orchestra pit during shooting, rupturing a disc in his back and requiring a month-long stay in the hospital. On October 14th of that year, while on vacation in Spain, Crosby went out with a group to play 18 holes of golf. By all accounts, he apparently appeared fine, looked fine, and was even photographed throughout the day, and he looked just, he looked fine. Crosby apparently won the game that day by a single stroke. Around 6.30 p.m., as Crosby and his party headed back to the clubhouse, he said, quote, That was a great game of golf, fellas. Let's go have a Coca-Cola. These would be his final words. About 60 feet from the clubhouse entrance, Crosby collapsed and died instantly from a massive heart attack. He was 74 years old. In all, Crosby had appeared in 55 feature films and was a major contributor to the music genre, likely being the most recorded musical artist in history, a title he holds to this day. Crosby was the first American icon of the 20th century, and his music is still regularly heard in film and television to this day. Bob Hope's film career continued into the 1960s and 70s, though he gradually reduced his workload as he aged. He made occasional film appearances and focused more on his television and live performances while, of course, touring the world performing for the troops. Overall, Hope would appear in over 70 films throughout his career, leaving an undeniable mark on the comedy genre in the process. His wit, charm, and versatility as a performer made him a beloved figure in Hollywood and a timeless entertainer. Hope continued an active entertainment career past his 90th birthday, although he had stopped starring in feature films after Cancel My Reservation in 1972. Hope celebrated his 100th birthday on May 29, 2003, five years after retiring from public performing. To mark this event, the intersection of Hollywood and Vine in Los Angeles was named Bob Hope Square, and his centennial was declared Bob Hope Day in 35 states. Even at 100 years of age, Bob Hope maintained his self-deprecating sense of humor, quipping at one of the events, quote, I'm so old, they've canceled my blood type. On the morning of July 27th, 2003, just shy of two months after his 100th birthday, Bob Hope died of pneumonia at his home in Toluca Lake, California. Bob Hope and Bing Crosby made incredible careers apart as well as together. Their road to films remain a crucial part of American cinema, a reminder that even in times of strife or stress, there's always time for a little song and dance, and maybe a couple of laughs, too. Take it, Twinkle Toes. Got it, Helium Hips. This boy's diseased with rhythm. Verna. Is this the one, daughter? Shh. You cover up my partner's taps. They both proposed to me. Well, Verna, we're both crazy about you. We've been fighting over you all week. Really? Yeah, and I won. Harold's going to marry her. Well, you see what I got lined up for you, boy. What is it, a dame? What else would I line up for you? What's wrong with her? Oh, she's a doll. She's really? a bell, yes. Cut it down to two encores. Okay. Let's move. 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I patronized the Horror Vibes coffee in NoHo many times this week, but this morning I opted to just make coffee at home because I've got plans tonight and I didn't want to waste any time getting recording in. And also I've clearly got new neighbors moving in next door, so it is very noisy. I'm panicfully, panically, whatever, trying to record this in between bouts of loud music and them clearly like scraping and spackling on the other side of the wall, neither of which I can really do much about because the person moving in next door is the building manager. Lucky, lucky me. I have also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're looking into the careers and films of two comedians that partially defined the late 70s comedy scene, Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong. I'm very excited for that one because I don't know much about these guys. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. We certainly do get around Like a complete set of Shakespeare That you buy at the corner drugstore For $1.98 We're Morocco bound Or like a volume of Omar Khayyam That you buy at a department store At Christmas time For your cousin Julia We're Morocco bound